and it's good to be back on schedule and not putting together the podcast early because of being on the road. Although it was nice to meet people again at Anuga in Germany, which forms a part of this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast, and it's number 155. And lots of interviews for you this week. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and as you can well imagine, I've got plenty to say about the trip. Some good, some not so good. As we will be having a part two with Anuga interviews next week, as well as plenty of video interviews once I get them all edited, perhaps I'll save some of those observations for next week. Or maybe I'll just repeat it all. The first thing is getting back on a plane again. I was a bit surprised how busy airports still are, and how people can't be bothered to social distance, or wear a mask, or at least wear a mask properly. I'm wondering why they have now become chin warmers, although winter is approaching. So I was in four countries, and my impression, which may be incorrect, is that Germany is by far the most compliant of the four when it comes to following social distancing and wearing masks. Ireland would come in second, Scotland third, and England fourth. One piece of advice that I do have, if you need it, and if you're going to be travelling at some point in the near future, is to download your proof of vaccination, as well as having it on an app. I hear that the UK app crashed last week, so people couldn't get access to their QR code. And at the airport that I was at anyway, there were a couple of people who couldn't get a signal. So if you have it saved separately as a PDF, you can just open it. The other thing is to check the rules about luggage, because they've changed a bit. There were some heated arguments between people and airline staff about bags on the plane. And you can guess who won those arguments. So please check before you fly. I'm starting to sound like a public service announcement here. I was pretty disappointed on the first flight that the airline wasn't helping a disabled man get to the plane. No one else did either, but I helped him all the way through the terminal and down the stairs in the terminal, and then had to haul him up the stairs onto the plane, and he wasn't light. I mentioned it to the cabin crew, and they just said, oh well, if you didn't order a wheelchair in advance, we can't do anything about it. I went through all the forms to get into Ireland, Germany, and back into the UK, and none of them checked. But the airports were a bit chaotic, and on the way home, going through security, a tray got stuck in the return chute, and that really slowed things down. I'll stop there and talk about the event part when I get to the interview shortly, so I'll tell you who's on the show this week, and then we'll get to the news, then part two of my rambling. So this week we have our first interviews from the Anuga Trade Show in Cologne, as well as an interview with FAIR. We spoke to Joe Raven, Senior Manager, Research and Engagements, and Tara Chandrasekharan, ESG Analysis, about FAIR's latest report, Appetite for Disruption, The Last Serving. And at Anuga we chatted with Karsten Haberman, Sales Director, Brand Retail, for German Food Retail at DMK, with John Lewis, Commercial Manager at Tipperary Cooperative Creamery Limited in Ireland, Ruta Kalaspulik from Sarema Dairy in Estonia, and Barry Saxby, Business Unit Director at Eat Lean in the UK. And we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. So let's do the news you may have missed over the past week. 
The IDF published its World Dairy Situation Report 2021 and welcomed Mexico to the IDF group. Stonyfield has stepped in to help U.S. Northeast milk producers and Barbara O'Brien has taken the helm of Dairy Checkoff. ITS launched a UHT pilot plant. Elopac acquired Nature Pack Beverage and the California Milk Advisory Board started a campaign to increase milk jug recyclability in the state. UK cattle vets are set to spearhead antibiotic data collection. GEA has created a new separator skid for the Indian dairy industry. And Arla Foods UK is aiming for 50% growth of its organic dairy business by 2026. Danone's sales are up in the third quarter. DFC is partnering with Canadian organizations on sustainability efforts. And N2 Applied, who we had on the show just a couple of weeks ago, has received 15 million euros in EU grants. Dola and Sacco System are joining forces on plant-based fermented food solutions. Made Smarter is helping UK food and drink companies with digital technology. And you can read all of these and more and register for our upcoming webinar, which is on November the 9th at DairyReporter.com. And of course, registration is free for the webinar, which is all about using dairy ingredients in new products. Okay, let's get to Anuga. It was so, so good to be back at an event again, and not just because of the samples. It was really well organized, but of course the entrance turnstiles were a huge bottleneck, although more so on the Monday when it was even busier. Sunday it was a little bit quieter, so a great opportunity to get some interviews. I didn't get given any free hand gel, but I did get a free face mask. Maybe they just didn't like my face. That face mask, however, was an issue in one store in Cologne, as I had to switch it for a surgical-style one, as the store wouldn't let anyone in without an official German government-approved mask, which was a bit odd as no other store seemed to care as long as faces were covered with something. I also discovered that sampling yogurt and wearing a mask is a disaster waiting to happen, as I smeared it all over the top of the mask. I also discovered a new medical condition, which may or not happen to other people. If you wear a hat, as I often do, when you've been wearing it for a long time and then take it off, it still kind of feels like it's there for a while. Well, phantom mask is clearly also a thing, because for an hour or so after the show every night, it still felt like I was wearing it. And it also pulls the ears out, so I look a bit like a trophy by the end of the day. Speaking of face masks, and you may want to fast forward past this if you're squeamish, walking to the airport on the way home, I ran over a discarded mask with my suitcase. And let me tell you, those things wrap around the wheels and don't come off easily. Mud, you can just kick it off. A used face mask, not so much. And of course, to get it off, all you can think of is that it's been on someone's face. And it still makes me shudder. I used about half a container of sanitizer after that. As always, when on a trip, I was asked for directions four times. Once by a pretty rude English person who clearly thought I was German and didn't even ask if I could help or if I could speak English. He just said rather rudely, trolley. I had no idea what he meant, so he shouted it, trolley ticket. It dawned on me what he wanted, so I said, oh, tram. And he said, trolley, tram, same thing. Where is it? I actually didn't know where it was, but I just said that I couldn't speak English. I was asked quite a few times if I could speak English when I first moved to North America from Yorkshire and no one could understand a word I said because of the accent. 
Anyway, we should get to the interviews at Anuga, German Dairy Cooperative DMK, announced it was diving into plant-based. So I spoke briefly with Karsten Haberman, Sales Director, Brand Retail, German Food Retail at DMK, about the move. We will launch this uh, articles in uh, January next year. And this is today's our communication day for this. So what does the new division consist of? We are thinking about this assortment uh, a long time. But we want to have ingredients from our country, from Germany. The ingredients in our products is uh, hafer. I don't know the oats. Word. Yeah. Oats, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> the taste is very good. You cannot, if you taste this, you drink it, you, you cannot feel that it's uh, without milk. You think it's with milk. And we think that is a very good uh, opportunity. Are you making uh, plant-based ingredients for other companies to use or are you making no. products with... Making products for our, for our company, yeah. Right. And, yeah. and Milram is, is part of DMK. Yeah, Milram is our, our main brand in DMK. We uh, changed the colors from the blue ones and the green one, but we decided to use our Milram brand and not a new brand because customers know Milram, 50% of the the shopper in Germany are buying Milram uh, products, the blue Milram products at the moment. And so we think that's a good way to go into the market. And those launch in January, you said? Yeah. Just first, in Germany? First in Germany, yeah. And uh, on the second part, we are in Europe. We will uh, step into the market in Europe. Eastern Europe, we have a big Milram base. UK, not really, because it's uh, almost a uh, private label business there. So it's not so easy for us, uh, a brand, for a brand to step in the market. Mm -hmm. But in East Europe and uh, South Europe also, but that's step two of the uh, step three. Next, we're talking cheese with Barry Saxby, business unit director at Eat Lean in the UK. Eat Lean at Anuga, what brings you to Anuga? Eat Lean's been going as a business now for about five years and during that time quite organically about 50% of our business already comes via international sales, so via export. That percentage is largely unchanged as we've gone through the last nine months and Brexit and all that's thrown up so despite some of the challenges of doing Anuga it felt like it was the right time particularly to come and talk to the German market and some of the Central European market as a really a really important current and future focus for the international development of the business. So uh, it's our first time here, so we've got nothing to compare it against, but it's been uh, it's been a really good day and a half so far. Are so. people mentioning Brexit? Yeah, it's coming up in dispatches. I think it is quite a practical conversation. It's, it's not too deep and meaningful. It's more, is this going to make my life more difficult or uh, more expensive to deal with you guys? From that point of view, we've continued to trade export ever since Brexit. It's been slightly cumbersome at times, a little bit more expensive, a bit more time dependent. But uh, you know, in the last few weeks, we've uh, we've sorted out a distribution hub in the Netherlands that allows us to move product much more freely into Europe and then around Europe. So we're sat here with a pretty strong story that says we can do it and we can work with you guys to do that, and therefore we can navigate around that. 
I think people just want the confidence they can do that and you know that it's not going to cost them more money, more time, more complication. There's enough for their businesses to work on at the moment without extra red tape and paperwork. So yeah, it's been a it's been a side note rather than a key conversation, I'd say. What's the recognition of your product like from Europe in terms of the protein? I mean, the first thing to say is that in the UK, we very much talk about calories is the main part of the proposition, then fat, then protein, and then all the good stuff supporting it. Certainly for most of the conversation in Germany in particular is protein is the lead message and then probably fat, then calories after that. So that's been an interesting switch. And we've kind of reflected that in how we've branded the stand up just in terms of the pecking order of the key messages. But I think the three do kind of go hand in hand. Uh, Those who are aware of us are already very, very clear about the values of protein, calories and fat that we can bring to the proposition and those who don't know about us once we've got them in and talking about the brand they you know the first question quite regularly is if it's a three percent fat cheese you know is there anything artificial in it what have you done to it and when we talk to them about it being the ingredients are cow's milk and a pinch of salt made the traditional way and then they try the product you know that's when we're we're kind of blowing people's minds because it's a it's a really good product we've been cooking it and using an application so we've been using a, a blend on a pizza of 50 percent eat lean and 50 percent mozzarella and people are just really clear, I wouldn't know. If you weren't telling me, I would not know what this is doing. And the health credentials from that are just massive. You know, swapping 50% of the cheese can bring down the saturated fat of a total pizza by a third. They're huge, huge numbers. And it enables people to, who love cheese to keep eating cheese whilst having either less impacts on them or, or more health benefits. So it's a really nice tale to tell, to be honest. I would say probably maybe one in five people are probably aware of us, but four in five come away from the stand saying, wow, so it's, uh, it's been a really worthwhile few days. Good. You're well known for a certain kind of products, but you have more than just that. Yeah, absolutely. And as a traditional cheese making business who've innovated into Eat Lean in the low fat space, you know, we've started and we lead with cheese and that's absolutely the right thing and that won't change. You know, within that, we've got a core range of 3% fat products. We've also got a range that sits more like 10%, which is still you know, well ahead of the market. But certainly we do a lot of business in the UK, direct to consumer. So through the eatlean.com website, People will buy 30 or 40 pounds worth of cheese at a time, delivered to their home as a chilled delivery. And it's those guys who've really helped us to kind of say, well, actually, you know, these are the other kind of products we're buying and have you thought about this? So we've been able to develop a range of sweet sauces, savory sauces, skier pouches that are all, ideally are all high protein, lower calorie and lower fat, or it's certainly two or three of those messages on the way through it. You know, some of them have settled in really well. Um, you know, the savory sauces we only launched probably, you know, six or eight weeks ago. and. They're already performing really well, but we also use them in our Nibbles product, which is like a food-to-go offering. So you start to then have the cheese from Eat Lean, the the sauce from Eat Lean, and then some crunchy bits that add to the texture of it. But it's a really, uh, you know, a nice light lunch option for 200 calories. So it just feels like our direct-to-consumer guys, they are so bought into what we're trying to do that we're just then trying to navigate what's the other stuff we can do with them. We're also trying to make sure we keep innovating by format. You know, so since I started my career 20 years ago, convenience and on-the-go has always been a trend alongside health. So portion controlled snack bars and things like that are are really really popular and being able to offer a a snack bar with 51 calories for a 30 gram snack bar you know that's mind-blowing i've got two kids who during lockdown ask for a snack every 10 minutes because they've just got used to doing it while they're at home and being able to give them something that is portion controlled low calorie low fat high protein much better than some of the alternatives they gladly take out the cupboard so um, it's just about making sure we've got products in the right format wherever people want them you know it's as simple as that and we're big believers that you can eat healthy and eat awesome. You know, you don't have to 
be eating salad all the time. You can, you can almost literally have your cake and eat it, still have your burger with your cheese on it, but by making that small change, you can just make it a little bit more accessible day in, day out, as we all try and balance with a healthy lifestyle. And you'll be aware, as I am, of some of the stats out there in terms of the general population, you know, one in three kids leaving primary school, overweight or obese. As a country, we've got to face into that, and we, we think we can be a, you know, a part of that solution. What about packaging? Packaging is important as well, I guess, nowadays. I mean, packaging from a, from a sustainability point of view, it's obviously almost the first question we get asked is about health and sustainability is normally pretty close behind that. I guess the packaging has to be functional. That's really important. And I think that we're trying to make sure we've got a view on the end-to-end role of the packaging. So quite often cheese packaging, part of its job is to make sure it's kept as fresh for as long as possible, which also means that we're, not, you know, we're, we're minimising food waste. So there are certain things we can do on packaging which will probably help the packaging be more sustainable but would then potentially throw a further issue out in terms of shelf life that then might mean food waste. So it's all about balance. We're really keen to keep finding the right solutions. It's not easy in cheese because ultimately you're trying to, you know, you're trying to keep that product with a reasonable shelf life on it. So we're working really hard as a team to make sure we're always trying new things. Now, there are plenty of options out there where you can recycle in certain places, not curbside. And certainly I'm aware of people like the co-op who've done a lot of advertising lately about bring your products to our store to recycle them. I think that's part of the solution where we'd really like to get to is something that is recyclable at curbside. Um, we're a little while from that at the moment, but it's certainly high on our priorities that we want a customer to feel really good about eating neatly because it's good for them, it's good for the planet. It's a really simple concept. We've just got to keep making sure we get closer to that with every iteration we make. So still work to be done, but we're heading in the right direction on that. What about new products? I see you have the, uh, is it the pizza? Yeah, we've, we've been working on a pizza mix, um, which there, there are a number of uh, pizza mixes in the market, which are, you know, they're all, they vary in fat content. They tend to be a blend of mozzarella and cheddar. We're about to launch a product, um, which will go live around, you know, just probably on the cusp of the new year. Always a good time to launch a healthy product going into January, which will be a third mozzarella, third R3% smoked cheese, and third R3% red cheese. So what you'll get is a product that's got all the stretch that mozzarella brings. You'll have the colour from our red cheese and then the flavour of the smoked cheese. So you get a really deep flavour, but with really good health benefits. So that'd be sub 10% as a pizza mix, which most in the market are, you know, mozzarella itself is 22%. Most of the cheese mixes are 25% fat. So again, that massive drop down in fat with negligible, if any, compromise on taste, which again is just us trying to help our consumer and the wider consumer to, uh, to eat more healthily whilst having food that tastes great which you know, all sounds very good. You know, and on top of that, we've got a l- number of things we've done on formats. So we you know, say the snack bars I mentioned, which are really important. And we're constantly just trying to make our formats as, as relevant as possible. We've got quite an exciting pipeline for next year, which we're just trying to work through. And, and certainly some of that comes to fruition. Then we'll certainly be sharing that with you as well. It'll take us to slightly new areas again, but with, with cheese at the heart of what we do with a health background and, and great taste to it. So it's never dull at Eat Lean. Yeah, <laughs> certainly that's not. Good. That's good. One thing I really like about Anuga is there are lots of interesting companies, and one I found was an Estonian dairy cooperative, Saremaa Dairy. Now, for those of you who don't know, a little geography lesson. Saremaa is a large island off the coast of Estonia in the Baltic Sea, and it's got a population of around 30,000, and it's quite big, around 100 kilometers or 60 miles across. The conditions there are a bit different, and so I'm told that the diet for the cows is different, which makes the milk taste different. The company was promoting its products at Anuga, organic cheese, butter, yogurt, and quark, as well as their latest, which isn't dairy, it's berry soup. To tell us more from the company is Ruta Kalaspulik. 
All right, so yeah, could you just uh, give me a little bit of background on the company? Yes, we are coming from Estonia. It's a small company, Sara Madeira, and we are situating in a small island, the Baltic Sea. And uh, we are cooperative, we own farms. Our main area is cheese and butter. And additionally, we are producing some cork, organic products, and uh, new product is uh, berry soaps. Kisel, it is in, in Estonia. And uh, what we are very proud of, our nature is very pure. We have a lot of sun. If you, uh, if you know where Estonia is, this is uh, something special, this is not very usual. And uh, it gives, of course, this flavor for milk and our products as well. Right, because yeah. the different uh, meadow flowers in Sarama, aren't they? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And varieties in nature, it's, it's different. All right, and, and where are your products sold? The main export partners are Finland, Latvia, Lithuania, no neighbors, of course, it's, it's normal. But the longest and maybe more exotic for us, from our point of view, is Greece and Spain, where we have export partners. So that's why you're here, is to try and find more partners? Yes, too. exactly. We are trying to find more partners and I would say that we are positively surprised. There are a lot of people who are ready to know where it's coming, but it's, it's okay. It's have been, have been very, very wonderful. And the new products that you have, what are those? Uh, this is Kisel. This is uh, berry soap. This is known, let's say, maybe eastern part of... Uh, Europe, but still I have uh, <laughs> their customers from Ukraine, for example, who said, what? What is it? We drink this as, uh, as cold and warmed, warmed up and, uh, and this is like dessert. Okay. We're serving this with whipped cream or quark or uh, porridge. And for the last of this week's Anuga interviews, there was a large Irish contingent at the event, some of which were dairy-related. One of the conversations we had was with John Lewis, commercial manager at Tipperary Cooperative Creamery Limited. So I guess if you could just give me a little bit of background on right. the cooperative. Okay, I suppose um, Tipperary Cooperative, we're a dairy cooperative based in South Ireland. We're a well-established business, we're over 100 years old. We've undergone a lot of development, a lot of change over the last three to five years. In 2020, we completed the installation of a new spray tower on site, and that's giving us huge opportunities going forward. Um, we're delighted to be here in Anuga. It's a very exciting opportunity for TIP to showcase what we've done over the last number of years and to bring the new products that we have on board. We have been currently in dairy. We specialised in a number of protein products. We supply about 15,000 tonnes of dairy protein every year to the infant formal sector in Ireland and Europe. We also then have specialised in high heat, heat stable, high heat, heat stable, low spore powders for export across the world. Um, we also produce quite significant volumes of buttermilk, again for the re reconstitution industry worldwide, particularly into the sweet and condensed sector. Again, they're high heat, heat stable, low spore powders. 
The new dryer gives us the opportunity to add additional value to our milk to support our farmers in the region. And these are very specialised powders looking at the whole area of nutrition through dairy and specialised nutrition through dairy as well. Uh, where we think that there are huge both medical opportunities for dairy and dairy to act as the carrier for quite a lot of drugs that are commonly being administered today. We're focusing on you know, growing milk and growing milk opp opportunities. We're looking at the area of restoration and restoration uh, boosting powders post-exercise through dairy as well and using the special characteristics of dairy as a carrier for those products. We're also looking at the, the whole area of immunity and I think it's again post-COVID that immunity will be a whole new focus on, on immunity and we believe that there's significant opportunities for dairy to be the carrier of these immunities products and from that point of view we've developed uh, three special powders over the last 12 months and we're very excited to be able to bring those to marketplace. And where are those going to be marketed? Again we're looking at the whole area of the Middle East, Far East and Southeast Asia. We're seeing the whole growth opportunities developing in those countries, the growth of their own economy supporting their drive for milk. You know, if you look at uh, milk consumption in the region at this moment in time, it's very, very low. They're becoming more westernised and we think there's a significant opportunity for the growth of dairy in these regions in the years to come, especially high quality dairy products. What are the new, you said there were new ones that were COVID related, what are those? They will be our immunity boosting powders. So there we're using a combination of whole milk and special skim milk powder uh, with special added vitamins and minerals to support immune systems. So we, we see a huge opportunity for those type of products. Irish dairy has got a good reputation overseas to start with. Yeah. Oh, the reputation of Irish dairy, you know, you see the growth in the Kerrygold brand worldwide and the huge job that Kerrygold have done in that over the years has been fantastic for the Irish dairy industry sector. So yes, we have a really um, unique position that our product is so highly regarded there across the world. Yeah. And you're obviously not the biggest cooperative in, in Ireland. How does that? How do you fit into that big dairy picture? Yeah, I suppose it gives us. Um, we always feel that our size is our real advantage in Tiberi. That um, you know we're not too, we're not big enough to be a threat to any of these country companies worldwide, and, and we're really big enough to be able to support them in every way possible. We have a fantastic production facility in Tipperary. We have a fantastic R&D team. We have a fantastic quality and technical team that can support these companies worldwide. You know, if you look at the Dairy Inc. in Ireland, if you look at the resource that we have, the likes of Moorpark, the likes of Chagas, you know, these agencies are, have a huge reputation worldwide. And we think that we will be able to support these countries using our state agencies as well. And then, of course, you've got Board B as well that helps. Board Bouillet have done a fantastic job. You know, we look at the stand here today and look at the opportunities given Irish dairy. You know, only for Bourbia we would not have been able to break into a lot of these markets over the last number of years. So certainly a fantastic job done there supporting Irish industry. Yeah. And how has the show been so far? I know it's only a couple of days old. Yeah, like we were taking it back really in terms of the, the number of people here over the last few days. Coming out we thought that Saturday and Sunday would be particularly quiet and we were getting ready for Monday, but Really, since we hit the ground on Saturday morning, it has been non-stop for us. So, yep, a busy couple of days ahead. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Lots of potential business. Yeah, we're seeing you know lots of people again who have been tied up for the last year and a half. You know, been wanting to find new suppliers, looking at new products, and this is the real opportunity for us to showcase what we can do for them. Mm. Really excited. Really mm. looking forward to it. 
Next, we get to this week's longer interview, which wasn't done at Anuga, but relates to the most recent FAIR report, Appetite for Disruption, the last serving, which is about the rise of alternative proteins. To tell us about the report are two members of the FAIR team, Joe Raven, Senior Manager, Research and Engagements, who we hear from first, and Tara Chandrasekharan, ESG Analyst. So I guess if we could start with a bit of background on the new FAIR report. The new report, it's called Appetite for Disruption. The last serving really does reflect FAIR's five years engagement with $17 trillion of investors representing it and with 25 leading food companies focus on the protein transition, both as a growth driver and a way of decarbonizing product portfolios. And during that same period, we've also seen massive investor support for the engagement. It's grown by more than 1,300% since it first launched back in 2016, which really does indicate the importance of the issue given the climate mitigation and the value creation potential. But also at the corporate level in in the report, you'll be able to see that there's been some really good signs of, of progress. I mean, company strategies are evolving to the extent that we're now seeing companies making formal and concrete commitments to boost meat and dairy alternatives. So it's not just high level ambitions. We're now seeing some formal commitments in place to address growing consumer demand, but also um, environmentally friendly protein options. What's the engagement like with companies? Are they engaging with you? How's that side of things working? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's also been a real evolution in terms of how companies see this issue and the sort of conversations that they want to have with us. Before it was us trying to get time with the companies. Now the companies want to speak with us. I mean, The level of response rate that we have, Jim, for this engagement from the companies is 90% plus. So this year, this particular round of the engagement, and then if we were to compare it to five years ago, we actually had only one company that made absolutely no contact with us in, in any capacity out of the 25 companies. So that is pretty significant. And it does indicate how important the issue has become internally. For a lot of these corporates, they actually look forward to speaking with us and with the investors as well every year, which has been really, really positive and I think is reflective also in the quality of the report and the findings that we're able to share with our audience. I wonder if you could give me some of the what you see as the highlights and lowlights of the report in terms of what companies are doing in this area. Sure. So I think the response of UK retailers like Tesco, like Sainsbury's, alongside some of the global manufacturers like Unilever, Nestle and Conagra is pretty promising. I mean, these companies have been evolving their businesses and sustainability strategies in line with a dietary transition towards low impact protein sources. And What's also interesting about their strategies is that they're looking to actually influence demand and promote long-term behavioral change beyond just increasing product choice for consumers, which is what still a lot of the other companies are doing. And it's also clear that in the UK and in Europe, I mean, investor pressure and consumer demand is now leading to commitment and action from these corporates on the issue of sustainable proteins. And this is encouraging from an investor angle because it means that these firms are ultimately will 
in the long term be less vulnerable to climate and transition risks like regulation and carbon taxation potentially. So as it stands, we've got 28% of the um, companies in the engagement that actually now have targets to expand their alternative protein portfolios, which is up from zero back in 2018, by the way. And then the other point to note is around innovation. This is moving really rapidly and cheese has actually become a core focus for many of the companies given the market opportunity and the climate mitigation potential here. We've seen the number of retailers in the engagement just selling cheese alternative has actually doubled um, in the last year from six last year to 13 in 2021. So you've got names like Canadian retailer Loblaw, for example, has expanded its internal plant-based cheese offering with quite a few new products. Again, UK retailer M&S is also expanding within this particular category, similarly Tesco. And I think the last point to note is around improved commitments to reduce agricultural emissions in supply chains with 68% of the companies in the engagement having a scope three target, which includes dairy. And of course, disclosure is key to any of our efforts to reduce emissions from dairy production. And again, nearly half of the companies in the engagement now track and publicly disclose their emissions from animal agriculture, which was back in 2019, we only had about 21% of the companies. So these are all promising areas. But I will say there's still quite a long way to go with 72% of the companies not yet having formal targets to diversify their protein sources. U.S. companies underperform quite significantly when we compare them with either their European peers or even some of the the Australian peers as well. Plant-based milk is already purchased by 39% of U.S. households. And again, the significant climate mitigation potential associated with these uh, is not really being addressed by these companies. Here in the UK, we see a lot of companies that are involved in meat production or cheese product, dairy cheese production, moving into like dairy alternatives and meat alternatives. And quite often, they seem to be better products. And I don't know whether that's because they have that background and history in the traditional products and they kind of have that jump. I think it's the importance of getting the taste, the texture, the smell of these products right is crucial because if you have a consumer that buys it for the first time, they try the product and it's not a good product, they won't buy it again. So the companies have one opportunity and one chance to when they're launching a new product to get it right and to at least incite a little bit of curiosity and surprise in the consumer, actually, this tastes pretty good. So I think that is really, really important, I think, when we're thinking about this market. And again, the companies that we engage with, they know this, and this is at the forefront of their own internal innovation. But also to point is now nutrition is becoming another big part of it. So they need to get the taste, the texture, and the nutritional profile right of these products in order to make them competitive and ensure that consumers are buying it. Why is protein diversification important? For a number of different reasons, actually. I mean, first of all, starting with the pandemic, I mean, clearly it's been a stress test for the animal protein industry. 
But we're also seeing in the lead up to COP26 in Glasgow um, this year, there's a growing scrutiny of the meat and dairy industry's climate footprint. I mean, the FAO says dairy sector's emissions have increased by 18% between 2005 and 2015 because overall milk production has grown substantially by about 30%. And then, of course, you've got the IPCC report, which was quite a sobering assessment. I mean, ultimately predicting that this 1.5 global temperature increase will be reached by 2040 if global emissions are not halved by 2030. And the role that methane emissions have as part of that discussion. And as a result of that, the reality is that companies need to be building resilience into their supply chains, their animal protein supply chains. But also you have changing consumer demand as well in terms of what consumers are shifting towards. They want to eat healthier. They're becoming more environmentally aware. And protein diversification offers this in terms of protecting the environment by reducing emissions and addressing issues like deforestation, antibiotic use. But it also helps generate long-term value for these companies by driving growth through innovation, meeting consumer demand, and ultimately ensuring that these companies have resilient portfolios that are climate aligned. And how is all of that being achieved in the dairy industry? Yeah, definitely. So we're seeing huge growth in the global dairy alternatives market, and it continues to increase in value. And it's projected to reach a value of 40.6 billion US dollars by 2026. And earlier this year, we had we saw the IPO of the plant-based milk company Oatly, which is now valued at 13 billion US dollars, indicating that the industry continues to grow. The plant-based milk sector is quite developed in the US and Europe compared to other parts of the world, and it continues to grow in both those regions. For example, in the US, plant-based milk accounts for just over 15% of all retail milk sales. I mean, also worth touching on is the fact that plant-based cheese market is growing pretty quickly. I mean, and that is another big market. But there are challenges in terms of um, trying to develop a plant-based cheese that matches the taste, the texture profile of real cheese is key to shift mainstream consumers to more sustainable plant-based diets. And we've seen, as Tara pointed out, there's quite a wide range of startups that are looking at new technologies to replicate that taste and texture of conventional cheese in non-dairy. I mean, companies like Perfect Day that are using precision fermentation, for example, also a company like Noble Foods as well, which is looking at casein through genetic modification of soybeans. But as we've mentioned earlier as well, is that you've got your mainstream food brands as well that are investing quite a lot of money in this new category because it's a huge market. So the disruption opportunities are significant. And I hate to mention regulation because that's when we get into things like taxes and all kinds of things like that. But is regulation, and it, it varies by region as well. Some countries are a lot more open to that than others. Is that something that countries or regions should be looking at? 
Certainly, Jim, and as you say, it definitely varies by region. And carbon pricing initiatives, as we've seen, are increasingly being used by national governments around the world as a mechanism to curb emissions, especially in high emitting sectors. And we haven't seen it so much in the agriculture sector yet, but it's happening increasingly. So, for example, the New Zealand government is targeting a 24 to 47% reduction in methane emissions by 2050. And one of the main mechanisms it's planning to use to address that is an agricultural emissions pricing scheme, which is going to be introduced by 2025 and could be introduced by as early as next year, in fact. And in New Zealand, the dairy sector is huge, uh, plays a massive role in the country's economy especially for its exports. So over 95% of milk produced in New Zealand is exported. And in 2020, dairy exports contributed to a total of 10.2 billion New Zealand dollars to the economy. In terms of emissions, over half of New Zealand's emissions come from its agricultural sector and a quarter of its emissions can be attributed to the dairy sector alone. So definitely a carbon price will have a huge impact on the dairy sector's operating costs in New Zealand. And we actually published a report earlier this year that looks at the risks a carbon price could pose to the dairy sector in New Zealand. And we found that by 2050, the dairy sector's carbon costs could be up to 26% of the current average operating profit of owner-operator farms. And indeed, earlier this year, Frontera, which is New Zealand's largest dairy producer, their CFO warned that New Zealand had reached peak milk production and attributed this both to regulation and things like climate change and the carbon tax that the government is planning to implement. And in fact, New Zealand's not the only country that's looking into this. So in August this year, the Irish government published its Food Vision 2030 strategy. And this includes a 10% reduction target for biogenic methane by 2030. So it's expected that this target will reduce the current herd size in the region. Yeah, so definitely, I think regulation will help play a key role in accelerating these trends. There are quite a few companies now working on strategies for methane reduction. Of course, that doesn't entirely address the entire picture that includes water and land use. How does all of that fit into the picture? Yeah, definitely. So we are seeing a lot of lower methane products coming up on the market. Like Fonterra, for example, is released its sustainability report last month, and they've discussed some research they're doing around feed additives to reduce the, the methane produced by their cows. But Lower methane products are more of a sort of sticking plaster than an actual solution, and they just aren't ambitious enough to keep the world below 1.5 degrees of warming and align the food sector with the goals of the Paris Agreement. And it's not just the dairy sector we're seeing this in, it's also in the meat sector. So, for example, Burger King's climate-friendly burger, which comes from cows that are fed with lemongrass to reduce the impact of methane emissions. But definitely, we recognize the amount of research and marketing and investment that goes into bringing out such a product. So rather than rolling out a product that marginally reduces the methane emitted by cattle, 
companies should focus more on the strategy and setting science-based emissions targets and diversifying their product portfolios to include more plant-based options and cultivated meat options. And these solutions would be far more effective in the long term for a sector that's facing massive scrutiny over its climate management. And so we're starting to see cultivated meat, cultivated dairy. How do we move those sectors forward? And how do we also address things like the nutritional value of the products? It's going to depend on quite a few key factors. I mean, one of them being consumer acceptance and product safety, right? These are novel processes being introduced. They introduce new ingredients. So the industry needs to be able to demonstrate the safety of its products and consumers need to be able to trust this. The cost of cultivated meat is decreasing as a result of standardized and like and reproducible stem cell cultivation. The price per kilo is still in the double digits, which is way above traditional meat and dairy. So in order to achieve those economies of scale and achieve um, price parity, there needs to be a massive capital build out to support the development of the ecosystem and achieve mass production if we even want to achieve 1% of the total protein market. And then, of course, you've got policy. Having a clear route to market is key for commercialization of these products. So if you can't sell your product, you won't be able to achieve economies of scale. And so far, we've only seen Singapore have a clear framework and a, who approved the first cultivated chicken nugget. Um, I think it was December last year, right? So that is hugely important when we're thinking around price and ensuring that these products will ultimately be there in the market in, in the future. And you mentioned nutrition. The, the point to remember with a lot of these products is that they can be 1.0 versions, 2.0 versions, 3.0 versions, and they're constantly innovating these products to ensure that they're able to replicate the right profile and, and include the right nutrients. Unlike, for example, um, an, an actual animal, right? It's not like you can produce different versions of, of the same animal, but with these products, you can until you get it right. Around 1 billion people on the earth are invested in the dairy industry somehow, whether it's through transportation, through people actually in the industry, people with one or two cows. How do we move to the point where this kind of shift doesn't have a massive socioeconomic effect at the same time? It's a great question, and I think it's one that we're starting to see as the market continues to grow. It's one that needs, it's an issue that needs to be addressed. You know, how do you upskill, for example, farmers on this issue? And how do you ensure that they are part of the transition and not left behind? In the engagement, that was actually one of the things that we started to see compared to other years is the number of companies actually talking around the need for a just transition is increasing and how can companies provide financial incentive whether it's small loans for example to support farmers in a way that they're able to produce animal proteins but also start thinking around upskilling their production practices and um, potentially even um, changing some of the infrastructure on their farms to ensure that they can ultimately be part of that plant protein transition as well. I don't think there's a straightforward answer yet because there's still a lot of work being done to figure out 
what could be the jobs that could be created as a result of this? I mean, I've seen a couple of different papers in the market and um, there's no consensus yet. It clearly varies per region depending on the significance of, of the sector, right? But I think there's a lot of opportunities, but it needs to be part of the conversation. You know, farmers need to be part of that conversation without a doubt. Do you have any kind of gold standard companies and retailers that are doing things right that others can follow? I think in terms of what do we want to see next is is ultimately investors want to see food companies not just responding um, reactively to the shift, but rather seizing this massive opportunity to drive growth and develop more climate and science aligned portfolios using sustainable proteins. And there needs to be more investment into the protein innovation as well. And as a result of that, there needs to be tangible commitments from companies rather than high level ambitions. And I think I mentioned earlier the need to set targets and we need to see more companies set targets to expand their alternative protein offerings. I mean, I will point to um, UK based um, retailer Tesco, for example, they do have a commitment to reach um, 300% sales on meat alternative products by 2025, which is a great step in the right direction. But we need to ensure that these targets are ultimately part of a portfolio transition. And it's not just a, I'm going to increase sales of um, plant based products, but also increase sales of animal proteins, right? Because otherwise, the benefits um, are not there, they cancel each other out. And of course, on the supply chain side, we need to see notable progress when it comes to um, reporting reduction in emissions around um, animal agriculture production. We're now seeing half of the companies tracking and publicly reporting their emissions from animal agriculture, including dairy, which is great, but we've still got a long way to go. And there needs to be greater transparency. And ultimately, this is necessary because investors and regulators and even climate conscious consumers can ultimately make better decisions on the products that they, that they choose. What are your next steps as an organization to keep working on this and moving it forward? So I mentioned the need for greater investment in, in protein innovation. And I think just to give you a little bit of, of context in terms of how much more needs to be done is when you actually contrast this technology to electric vehicles, for example, which offer a similar sustainable solution to fossil fuel vehicles, they're, they're a disruptive technology. The investments in electric vehicles in 2020 were actually over nine times that of alternative proteins. So this needs to change and needs to increase dramatically if we really want to finance a green agricultural transition. And we also, again, need to see greater transparency. So from our perspective is we will continue engaging with companies, um, especially those that um, are in what we call the, the middle of the pack and perhaps um, not quite there yet in terms of some of the progress that we want to see, but also continuing to engage with the different stakeholders that are an, an important part of this conversation. And I think just to um, point on the supply chain side, I'm not sure, Tara, if you've got any final comments on your end as well. Yeah, I think from looking at protein producers as well, we definitely also, I think, compared to the consumer facing side, there seems to be less 
clear definitions around protein producers diversifying their alternative protein portfolios. But again, we definitely want to see them setting science-based targets and some clear strategy around their sustainability targets. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. Charlie was also at Anuga, although we weren't able to meet up, unfortunately. Anyway, hi, Charlie. Hello, Jim. It's been a week, or a couple of weeks, should I say, of very strong price increases um, almost across the board in terms of European and, and even global dairy. On the European quotations, uh, which are just out this morning, we see that they continue to move higher here. Butter has moved up by about 2.6%. Skim milk powder has moved up by about 3.2%. And these are on top of you know very strong gains even the previous week, where butter the previous week had been up almost 6%. So we've seen pretty big moves and, and the futures have certainly been moving ahead and, and driving forward as well. I mean, we've we've just uh, seen today price increases above €5,000 per tonne for butter in, in quarter one. And, you know, that's gone up through a, a psychological trigger level um, where there should be some resistance at 5000 but the, the market has gone straight through it. And, you know, if you look at it, uh, you know, that's a, a major increase from, from even the summer where, for example, in August, we were trading about 4,000 euros for similar periods in, in quarter four and quarter one. So, um, you know, markets have been very, very strong, uh, largely driven by the fact that the milk collections around Europe have been quite poor and certainly worse than expectations. And, and I think there's been a few reasons for that. We've, we've seen that, um, obviously, costs on farm levels have been increasing substantially and quickly that's everything from grains to fertilizers to energy costs all and labor costs all increasing dramatically over the last couple of months and and farmers are really feeling that and even though these commodity prices are starting to increase rapidly the milk prices are are lagging so they don't move up as quick and uh, as a result the farmers margins in the short term have been squeezed so the farmers have been pulling back. They've been feeding less aggressively. Um, as a result, solids have been down. There's been decreasing cow numbers in, in some of the major countries, such as France and Germany. Again, similar reasons because the farmers' margins weren't great, but also because there's been you know psychological pressure um, on farmers, especially with so much talk around uh, you know environmental restrictions and, and things like that. So in general, the milk supplies have been weak, and it's not just Europe. Um, we've seen similar situations where milk collections have been lower than expected in, in the U.S. as well. So, uh, you know, there is appearing to be a, a global shortage at the moment. At the same time, demand has been reasonably robust. We've seen we're obviously moving into uh, towards Christmas period here, and demand has been pretty good for a lot of dairy products as a result. But even still, uh, on, on top of that, it looks like there's a lot of um, lack of under coverage, let's say, from a lot of end users. And as a result, they've been having to step in now while they were expecting prices to fall. They haven't been falling. So they've had to eventually step into the market and, and buy. And that's adding to the increase in prices here, especially in the short term, especially in, in the end of this year and the start of next year. I mean, if we look internationally, we, we had a global dairy trade auction yesterday, and, and that was also very strong. Uh, we had prices on average up about 2.2%. And that was, you know, most of the products were up. Butter was up very strong, cheese up very strong, skim milk powder up 2.5%, home milk powder up 1.5%. In general, continuation of the same trend we're seeing in Europe uh, and the Oceania prices there, they've been moving up. 
maybe not quite to the same degree. Europe has found itself a bit tighter than maybe the rest of the world, but still everywhere is, is feeling bullish at the moment. You know, looking out forward, we do see that farmer margins in Europe should start to improve as we get towards the end of the year because the, these lagging milk prices should increase um, to a level which should compensate for a lot of the increased costs on farm level. So, you know, there, there is signs to be a bit more optimistic that we'll get more or extra milk next year, which will alleviate some of this pressure. But in, in the short term, um, the markets are, are tight and as a result, prices are, are moving up. Thanks, Charlie. We'll talk to you again next week. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for this week's show. Next time we will have a few more interviews from Anuga and more. I can say I'm glad that I went and now the need to pay for an expensive test on day two after returning the UK is ending next week and that makes it even easier. So now that I've got that under my belt, I'm ready for the next one whenever that is, likely the end of November. Hopefully I've got all of the video edited by then from this one. Of course, by being away, I missed the waterfall in our street as a water main burst, but I did see pictures. So now I'm almost rested up and it's time to get back to eating and editing. So wherever in the world you may be, I hope you have a great week. Take care, stay safe, and as always, thanks for listening.